Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family. Our expert today is Dr. Alex Quas. He completed his OBGYN residency at Harvard and his REI fellowship at USC. After spending four years as academic faculty at the University of Oklahoma and one year at the University Hospital at Basel, Switzerland, he returned to the United States to join Reproductive Partners San Diego as Associate Physician and UC San Diego as Clinical Assistant Professor. He is very active in teaching and research in the field of REI, serves on the editorial board of Fertility and Sterility, and on the board of directors of the Pacific Coast Reproductive Society, and as section editor for Assisted Reproduction at the Journal of Assisted Reproduction and Genetics, otherwise JARG. Welcome, Dr. Quas. Thank you so much for being with us today to talk about Infertility Medications 101. Thank you for inviting me. I think anytime we're going to be talking about infertility medications, it helps to begin with a basic overview of the menstrual cycle and conception so that we understand the biology that the medications are working with. So if you could just take us through a, uh, uh, an introduction of, of menstruation and uh, conception and how it works within the body and, uh, and the, the interplay between brain and, and reproductive system. Yeah, that's a great start. So basically, I, I can maybe tell an anecdote from my residency. I had one of the attendings I was working with, one of the REI attendings, tell me in my residency that she, who was sort of many years out of training, still learns new things about the menstrual cycle every day. And she uh, basically told us, and this is what I tell medical students and residents and nurses, uh, that the menstrual cycle really forms the basis of everything that we do. So understanding it really helps uh, to uh, understand everything that we do. And basically the first thing to say is, you know, to start uh, with sort of very basic parts, there are two halves of the menstrual cycle. And it's important to remember that we can name these two halves either based on the predominant hormone or based on what's happening in the ovary or based on what's happening in the endometrium. And basically, if you understand those names and can keep those names, then you already have a framework. So what's happening in the ovary is that in the first half of the cycle, there's a follicle developing. And then at the, in the middle of the menstrual cycle, there's ovulation. And then the transformation of the follicle into a corpus luteum. So logically, Based on the ovary, the first half of the cycle is called the follicular phase because there's a follicle developing, and the second half is called the luteal phase because there's a corpus luteum. Based on what's happening in the endometrium, which is the end organ that gets the messages from the ovary, you can also call it proliferative because in the first half of the cycle, the endometrium proliferates, and secretory because in the second half of the cycle, the endometrium becomes secretory and ready for implantation. You can also name it based on the hormones that are predominant. Predominant In the first half of the cycle, there is virtually almost no progesterone, and estrogen is the predominant hormone because the follicle, or uh, more precisely the granulosa cells of the growing follicle, produce increasing amounts of estrogen. 
And then in the second half, uh, when the uh, corpus luteum develops and basically uh, the granulosa cells luteinize, as we say, then those produce progesterone, but we also cannot forget that they also produce estrogen. It's just that progesterone is the sort of, in some ways, the key uh, player in the secretory transformation of the endometrium, and therefore you could ca call the first half predominantly estrogen-driven and the second half predominantly progesterone-driven. So basically that's a start to basically know which ones the two, two halves are. Then, of course, there's a lot of detail, and we could just talk about the menstrual cycle for a whole hour, which we're not planning to do. But basically, just, just, to, just to, to, to summarize, at the beginning of the menstrual cycle, there are antral follicles visible in the ovaries on ultrasounds. These are small follicles, and I always tell patients they're sort of like all getting ready, trying to compete to be the one follicle that is the chosen one. And then under the influence of FSH from the pituitary gland, those get stimulated. But, and this is the part that is kind of fascinating about it, at some point as these follicles grow under the influence of FSH, one of them becomes a little bit bigger than the rest. And because all of these follicles are making some estrogen, including the bigger one, the FSH levels from the pituitary actually drop a little bit because there's a negative feedback mechanism. And so the FSH levels are not quite as high anymore. However, the biggest one has basically become more sensitive to even lower concentrations of FSH and therefore is still able to grow under smaller concentrations, under the influence of smaller concentrations of FSH, whereas the other ones kind of go away. So they've sort of lost the battle and the big one is the one that makes more and more estrogen and eventually releases the egg. That is sort of a sort of simple way or a somewhat simple way of putting the selection of the dominant follicle that occurs in the natural way because otherwise maybe like some other animal, well, like, like some of the, uh, you know, for example, mice, uh, you know, they have, a, they have not one pup, they have many, 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 uh, they have a litter. So, of course, women, you know, every month in their natural state have mechanisms in place that basically favor the selection of the dominant follicle and ensure that there's one egg being ovulated at a time because otherwise women would have, you know, multiple pregnancies all the time. Now, as we get to later, of course, in what we do, sometimes we take that natural selection of the dominant follicle out of commission and we intentionally produce the growth of multiple follicles and we'll talk about how we do that, but that is not the natural state. In the natural state, one follicle ovulates and then transforms into a corpus luteum the corpus luteum is basically making these hormones, progesterone and estrogen, to facilitate implantation, implantation and early uh, embryo development, etc. And then what happens, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before we get into other things, and then what happens is normally the hormones from the pituitary gland, like LH and FSH, are stimulating the ovary. 
and the corpus luteum has sort of a, a very uh, sort of distinct time that it's able to produce hormones before it starts to degenerate unless there is implantation and HCG is being produced by the developing uh, trophoblast, meaning by the early pregnancy, then the HCG can quote-unquote rescue the corpus luteum to continue to produce hormones and keep the pregnancy um, growing. So basically the corpus luteum at first is maintained through the gonadotropins, which is what the name is for LH and FSH from the pituitary gland. And then later on, as these would normally drop, the HCG from the trophoblast takes over. And then if uh, basically the HCG continues to maintain the corpus luteum, then no period occurs and the pregnancy continues to grow. If the implantation doesn't happen, then the corpus luteum stops making hormones, it degenerates, and the next period comes. So of the two halves in the menstrual cycle, the first half, the follicular phase, can be variable in length. The second half, the luteal phase, is usually 14 days, uh, approximately 14 days. So the follicular phase has some, uh, has some variability. Correct. So typically, and, and of course, the luteal phase can have a little bit of variability too, but that's a sort of like more specialized discussion where we get yeah. into uh, the question of the, the so-called luteal phase defect, which is a very controversial subject. But for all intents and purposes of the basics, of learning the basics, I would say that the length of the menstrual cycle is predominantly affected by the length of luteal phase. So for example, in the most standard menstrual cycle where somebody has a 28-day interval from day one of one cycle to day one of the next cycle, in that most standard uh, sort of textbook menstrual cycle, the luteal phase would be 14 days and the follicular phase would be 14 days. Mm -hmm. If somebody tells me, I have regular cycles, that, but they're coming every 32 days, then I initially conclude or suspect that the follicular phase is now 18 days instead of 14, mm -hmm. and the luteal phase stays constant at 14 days. So if, if somebody is trying to predict when they ovulate, they can essentially subtract the interval between day one and day one, like the, their normal menstrual uh, cycle length, mm -hmm. and subtract 14, and then they get the length of the follicular phase, and th that is then if you count day one of bleeding as cycle day one, then for example, in this example, cycle day 18 would be the day of ovulation. Mm -hmm. Does it matter at all uh, if your uh, follicular phase is 18 or 14 days? Is that just, you're, you're normal and there's nothing wrong with that other than the fact that it helps, you need to know for the prediction of when you need to time your intercourse? Yes, that's correct. So it does not matter, like for example, if somebody is worried about the fact that they have, um, let's say, a 30-day cycle or 32-day cycle instead of a 28-day cycle, mm -hmm. if it's regular and then they are able, like it, obviously women are uh, then uh, trying to detect ovulation with basal body temperature readings or ovulation predictor kits. So if somebody consistently detects ovulation on day 18, let's say, then they, could, they still should have a similar chance of pregnancy as somebody who detected on day 14. So the distinction is just in the, in the number of days. 
yeah, correct. Let's start. And uh, if, if, okay. I, if I can add one more thing to that, that I was just thinking of. So on the other hand, if somebody has a shortened cycle with advancing reproductive age, that may have some significance uh, because and this is something that actually comes up a lot in clinical practice. So when we see patients who tell us, ooh, my cycle used to be 20 to 28 days, like clockwork, clockwork, but then most recently, like about six months ago, it started to be like a 26-day cycle, and now it's more like 24. So if the cycle length shortens, then that can, it doesn't have to be, but it can be a worrisome sign for decreasing ovarian reserve because one thing that's fascinating that happens in the, the, the menstrual cycle is that the recruitment of follicles for a menstrual cycle actually can start in the late luteal phase of the preceding cycle. So what that means is as the corpus luteum in the second half of the cycle starts to make less hormones because it starts to become less active and starts to get into the process of degenerating, then the FSH levels from the pituitary in response to lower estrogen and progesterone concentrations already start to go up in the late phases of the preceding cycle. And then we can sometimes have this situation, and, and this happens especially in women who have low numbers of eggs, meaning in, in, in clinical practice, low AMH levels or, you know, high or increased basal FSH levels, as we can uh, deduce from this. But basically, in that scenario, the stimulation of the, the recruitment of the follicles and the stimulation of the dominant follicles actually starts in the preceding cycle. And then sometimes when we look on day two or day three, the patient already has a 15 or 17 millimeter follicle on day three of the cycle, and then she may ovulate uh, day seven or so of her cycle or, or day 10, and then that way the cycle length shortens because, again, from ovulation to the next period, it's 14 days. So that is clinically important information. Because you can use that to help diagnose uh, what the problem is. Correct. Interesting. Okay. All right. So now let's move into talking about medications. So the medications we use for infertility treatment. Let's start with the oral medications. Uh, first of all, what are the most common uh, oral medications that, uh, that are used? Yeah, so some of the most common, uh, like maybe the most common medication uh, uh, we use is Clomid, mm -hmm. although in some settings the use of that is becoming less. Uh, but then there are others such as Letrozole or um, Femara uh, that we use. And then also, uh, you know, and this is something again that we'll talk about, and I, uh, I think I did talk about that on the last po podcast I was allowed to do uh, about PCOS, uh, insulin sensitizing agents such as metformin. Um, so to go into those, so Clomid or Clomiphane citrate is a SERM. That means S-E-R-M, a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So uh, SERMs or selective estrogen receptor modulators can 
affect the estrogen receptor in different ways in different tissues. That's the, the broadest way to, to put it. And actually, tamoxifen is, uh, is one of them. That's a, a medication that a lot of people are familiar with, with mm -hmm. because it's used in, in breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what uh, selective estrogen receptor modulators do is they act on the estrogen receptor in different ways depending on which tissue it is. So uh, they act... Uh, they can act as an agonist or antagonist, meaning either as a stimulator or an inhibitor in uh, different tissues such as the breast or the uterus or the bone. And so specifically Clomid acts in a way, so this, this is some, something that's kind of complex to understand, but I'll try to explain it in a, in a, in a simple way. Usually when the pituitary gland quote-unquote, sees estrogen, then in response, it will decrease the amounts of FSH and LH that it secretes. And so it's a feedback uh, loop, which there's a lot of feedback loops in endocrinology. Uh, they, they can be compared to like a thermostat. So let's say if you have a thermostat in your house uh, that works to keep the temperature a certain way, then, you know, if the temperature drops, then it might kick in the heating. If the temperature increases, it might cool the air. So similar to this, uh, the pituitary gland can essentially increase the secretion of FSH if it senses uh, lower um, estrogen concentrations. And what Clomid does is it essentially mimics to the pituitary gland that the estrogen concentrations are low, uh, meaning it blocks those negative feedback receptors, and that way it increases the gonadotropin concentrations, mostly FSH, and that FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, acts on the ovary to stimulate follicle growth. Now, it also has other actions, but I think for simplicity, let's just keep it at that. It's basically a, a quote-unquote cheap, cheap way to give a woman FSH by stimulating her own FSH secretion. Fake the pituitary gland out and, and, and to make it think that it needs to keep producing FSH. So she is producing more than she would be producing. Uh, so it's a, it's, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think that one thing that's very important in this context is, and this is something that I go over with medical students and residents, so the, the hormones that are produced in the ovary, um, estrogen and progesterone, are steroid hormones. Uh, but they get produced in response to gonadotropins from the ovary, and the gonadotropins from the ovary are glycoproteins. What does that mean? They're proteins attached that have some attached sugar residues on the surface. So glycoproteins are produced by the pituitary gland. And the problem is that glycoproteins, they're uh, essentially water-soluble uh, hormones uh, produced by the pituitary gland that if we gave them in an oral form, they would be digested by the stomach acid. So we, we, you know, like 
the, the first thought that somebody thinks of when somebody says, I'm doing IVF, they think injections. Well, mm -hmm. why injections? That's because the glycoproteins, FSH and LH, would not be effective if we gave them by mouth because they would just be digested by the stomach acid. So I tell my patients, it's not that we want to be mean to you by telling you to take the injections. It's just at this point, the only way that we know how to ad administer these water-soluble hormones. And so what the Clomid does is it's sort of like a poor man's or poor woman's FSH because it's an oral medication that increases the FSH concentrations more than they would usually be. But, I mean, we would only use Clomid if that did the job that the, that the injectable FSH did, but it doesn't quite stimulate the ovaries as powerfully as FSH does. The injectable one, okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the reason that we do use injectable medications is to avoid the... the uh, uh, the impact of stomach acids on the medication and destroying it. Right. I mean, basically, if, you know, I always say to the medical students, if I was able to um, somehow invent an orally active FSH preparation, I'd probably be able to retire in the Bahamas uh, because <laughs> that would be like the, the breakthrough. Like nobody would have to take all these injections anymore during their FSH cycles, um, during their IVF cycles, but they could just take a pill that does the same thing as FSH. But it's incredibly hard to do, and I'm sure people are working on this. But basically, uh, the, the, the route of administration of these glycoprotein hormones is injectables. Now, the Clomid is, uh, uh, as I said, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and so it can increase the endogenous FSH concentrations, but not quite to the extent that giving external FSH can. Okay. Now, you talked about uh, Clomid or, or clomiphene citrate. Now, let's talk about letrozole. How does it work? Yeah, so just also to put it into the bigger context, both of these medications are used in, in different settings, uh, either to induce ovulation in women that don't usually ovulate, classically PCOS, for example, or in women who are ovulatory, meaning who do ovulate, to, as we used to call it, quote-unquote, super-ovulate them, which means, you know, I, I talked earlier in the menstrual cycle physiology about how there's a selection of one dominant follicle. Both Clomid and Letrozole can increase the number of follicles um, in different mechanisms of action. Um, so both in the setting of PCOS or anovulatory infertility, and in the setting of quote-unquote unexplained infertility or in cases of decreased ovarian reserve in women who actually ovulate, both Clomid and Letrozole may be given. Now, Letrozole actually has a somewhat similar mechanism of action, at least the simplified mechanism of action, because what it does is there's a hormone called aromatase that converts androgens to estrogens. Uh, so they're in the steroid pathway that we as 
you know, when we're REI fellows, we have to all memorize it. Uh, there is a step towards the end of the of the whole, uh, you know, steroid graph, um, where androgens such as testosterone get converted to estrogens such as estradiol. And uh, the hormone is called aromatase, so if you inhibit it, there's less estrogen floating around the body. And again, as we said before, because of the thermostat mechanism, because of the negative feedback, if you have less estrogen floating around, there will be increased FSH concentrations. So it's somewhat similar mechanism of action to Clomid, except that it acts on the hormone aromatase that decreases estrogen concentrations and then will make the pituitary produce more FSH again. Um, now, we, we did, I think, discuss uh, in the podcast on PCOS the fact that in the old days, Clomid was the first-line medication to induce ovulation in PCOS until a 2014 study from the Reproductive Medicine Network that demonstrated that uh, letrozole was actually uh, associated with increased live birth rates compared to Clomid in the setting of PCOS, uh, ovulation induction. And therefore, uh, you know, more and more people are switching, at least in the setting of polycystic ovarian syndrome, to, to use letrozole as the first line and Clomid uh, as the second line. Uh, in the setting of unexplained infertility, they can be used sort of almost interchangeably. Uh, I would say in that setting, most people still favor Clomid. Interesting. So both, so for uh, where PCOS may be involved, letrozole, but for unexplained mm -hmm. Clomid, interesting. Yeah, and, and, that's sort and, of a simplified, simplified yeah. version, yeah. Let me pause for a moment to remind you that this show is brought to you in part through the generous support of our partners. These are organizations and clinics that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. We could not be doing what we do without their support, and we thank them. One such partner is Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions. Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions are global leaders in IVF and reproductive genetics. Cooper Genomics offers PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR, and ERP, which is an endometrial receptivity testing, for those who are pursuing IVF. Cooper Genomics genetics tests screen an embryo's genetic health to help your care team select the best embryo for transfer and improve your chances for achieving a successful pregnancy. Now let's talk about metformin and some of the others. They're, they're less fertility drugs per se, but they are oral medications that are used often in fertility treatments. So let's talk about them briefly. Yeah, so um, there was a time, and it was right around the time when I was actually in residency, um, when um, metformin was sort of hailed as the new uh, the, the, the best thing since sliced bread uh, in the setting of uh, PCOS um, because there was evidence that, you know, because PCOS is a disease that has overlaps between the reproductive and the metabolic system, uh, there was a thought that using these sort of diabetes medications can actually 
reverse some of the physiology from PCOS and help people ovulate. So people used it quite liberally in patients with PCOS and actually that has persisted to this day. I think I see a lot of patients being started on metformin by their uh, primary uh, gynecologist. However, just like there was a study that I just mentioned that compared letrozole and clomid, about 10 years before that, I think around 2004, there was a study that compared clomid with metformin in the setting of PCOS and actually found that clomid is more effective. Um, and so I would say metformin is used as an adjunct. Uh, I don't think it's a first-line medication to induce ovulation anymore. Uh, and outside of the setting of PCOS, I'd, I'd say there's very limited use of metformin. There's some evidence that it can be used during ovarian stimulation to prevent ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but again, this is something where I would say there's still some divided opinions about it, and it's not used universally. So I would say these medications are used less than they used to. Okay. So which patients are the better candidates for uh, any of the oral medications, be it Clomid or Letrozole? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So um, when, so, so any patients that we see, um, just to remind the listeners, uh, we do a basic infertility workup. And just to very abbreviated say what the elements are, those are uh, like a semen analysis, some sort of assessment whether the patient is ovulating, then an anatomic evaluation uh, to see if the tubes are open and the uterus is normal, and then some sort of assessment of ovarian reserve. So if a patient has ovulatory dysfunction, and the most common cause of ovulatory dysfunction is PCOS, then if they have PCOS and they're overweight, then I recommend to try and lose weight and do lifestyle changes. But then the next step in order to induce ovulation is to use letrozole or clomiphene citrate to induce ovulation. So patients with PCOS who have ovulatory dysfunction, these medications are used as a first line. And so at first you would just try and fix the ovulatory defect and if they then are ovulating after not having ovulated before, then they can otherwise try naturally to get pregnant with uh, timed intercourse. If uh, that doesn't work, then insemination can be added as an adjunct. And then obviously, if um, let, let's say if they don't respond to the oral medication, then sometimes we have to move on to injectables. But these oral medications are basically the mainstay of the first line therapy in polycystic ovarian syndrome. The other setting where they're used is in that infertility workup that I mentioned, uh, if everything turns out to be completely normal and they fall into the category of unexplained infertility, then we typically recommend using one of these oral medications uh, for five days, cycle day three to seven, in combination with intrauterine insemination. So, in, in the setting of unexplained infertility, it's been found that there's not great amounts of benefit of just, quote-unquote, giving people these medications orally without intrauterine insemination, but in combination with IUI or intrauterine insemination, uh, that is the first line. 
And then if they don't get pregnant with these IUI cycles, then we can consider going to IVF. And then in the setting of IVF or in vitro fertilization, we actually in our group use Clomid as a sort of adjunct in some patients to the injectables. So we essentially use the Clomid to work in a sort of synergistic way with the injectables by giving people the FSH or LH as an injectable form and then at the same time giving them Clomid during the stimulation to increase their own FSH levels. Mm-hmm. So that's, and that's, with, that's obviously with IVF. All right, going mm-hmm. back, yes. what type of, uh, now, now talking about just when uh, just oral medications are being used, not when they're being used as an adjunct to an IVF cycle with injectables. What type of monitoring should be used for patients taking these medications? Um, basically, as we get to it later, in a, in, a, in a IVF cycle, we do very, very close monitoring with ultrasounds like almost every couple of days, couple of days. Uh, in the setting of oral medications that are used for PCOS or unexplained infertility, we typically recommend at least one mid-follicular or late-follicular ultrasound. So uh, in our typical uh, protocol, patients come in for a baseline ultrasound to make sure that uh, they don't have any cysts and that they're at the right stage of the cycle at the baseline to initiate these medications. And then they start taking them from cycle day three to cycle day seven. And then typically around day 10 to day 12, depending on how long the normal cycle is in these patients, we bring them back and do an ultrasound to actually look at the number one, the number of large follicles that have developed and the size. And then we can time the either timed intercourse or the insemination based on how large the dominant follicle is. And also in that way, we can also monitor how many follicles the patient has developed. Because, you know, I, I think that it's totally fine for people in the community to try and, for example, treat patients with PCOS, with Clomid or Letrozole if they have a basic understanding on how to do these cycles. The only problem is sometimes that uh, if you don't do an ultrasound, it could be that the patient either doesn't respond at all, and of course then, you know, typically in, in, the, in the setting of a, a, a general gynecologist, that, that would be figured out when a progesterone level is done in the middle of the luteal phase, and if that was low, then basically she wouldn't have responded. But, and then of course, uh, based on that, you could change the dose and things like that. But the the worst problem would potentially be that a woman with PCOS unknowingly, uh, somebody who doesn't normally ovulate, unknowingly suddenly has four or five follicles instead of one. And then that would be in our hands, a reason to, to cancel the cycle, to tell the patient, okay, please don't, have timed intercourse, let's not do the intrauterine insemination. Uh, Let's just lower your dose and try to get you to a point where you only ovulate one or at most maybe two follicles. But that is the the crucial part about the monitoring is to see how many follicles there are. And if there are too many, cancel the cycle. 
and then also to, to determine the timing. So for example, if I see a 19 millimeter follicle, that's basically almost ready to ovulate. They typically ovulate in the normal natural state when they're between, let's say, uh, 19 or 18 and 25 millimeters. And the other thing that we can do is actually trigger ovulation at that point to ensure that the timing is correct. Okay. So how effective um, are these uh, two oral meds that we've talked about, clomiphene citrate and letrozole? How effective are they at helping patients get pregnant? How much above the, uh, the natural uh, uh, percent, the natural pregnancy rate, will they increase a patient's chance? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. And to, to answer the question, it, it, we need to remind ourselves that the natural fecundity, meaning the natural chance or probability of pregnancy in a given month uh, in the general population is somewhere around 25%, 20 to 25%. So let's say if a couple decides today that they're going to start trying, and let's say they're healthy in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, and basically no, no factors to suggest that they have any kind of infertility like previous chemotherapy or something like that. Let's say a healthy couple starts trying, the chance of pregnancy every month is about somewhere about 20 to 25%. So in the setting of polycystic ovarian syndrome, in a young patient who doesn't usually ovulate, I usually tell patients that I can sort of, you know, with pretty high chances of success, produce ovulation, but then to turn an ovulation into pregnancy is still basically limited by the fact that not 100% of women get pregnant every month that try. So I would say that in a healthy woman with PCOS, uh, the, the chance is probably somewhere about 25% when we successfully induce ovulation that she can get pregnant uh, with intercourse. And of course, there are studies to like the, the, the PPCOS uh, trials that I've mentioned earlier that have shown uh, that after you know four cycles, a majority of patients uh, have managed to get pregnant. Now, in the setting of unexplained infertility, the, the key here is to understand that infertility is defined as 12 months of unprotected intercourse um, without conception. And so if somebody has infertility, meaning has tried for 12 months, and they're now diagnosed with unexplained infertility, the chance is no longer thought to be 20 to 25% per month, but it's thought to be 3%. And so uh, insemination or clomid with insemination, so uh, or letrozole with insemination, raises that from about 3% to maybe about somewhere around 10%. And if the, if the couple does three cycles, then it's about a 30% chance. So these are relatively low sounding numbers, but it does increase the chance from the baseline, which mm -hmm. if a couple has unexplained infertility is only 3%. Okay, so just to, to summarize, if for PCOS patients, assuming that they're young, uh, that you can increase their uh, chances, their fecundity, their, their fertility to about the natural uh, fertility of, of, of the general Correct. population. With unexplained infertility, then, uh, the, then you can raise their chances to 
about half, really, about 10% versus 20 to 25% uh, each month, right. chances of getting pregnant each month. Okay. Yeah, so, correct. And, and the, the important thing there is also to remember that um, when we do, when we use Clomid in the setting of intrauterine insemination in unexplained infertility, uh, the chance goes up from maybe 3% to somewhere around 10% per cycle, but also the chance of multiples goes up from a baseline rate of maybe 1% to 2% to somewhere around 5 to 10%. Well, that leads me into the, the, the next question, which what are the risks uh, of taking mm. these oral meds? You've mentioned uh, multiple pregnancies, so, so multiple births. Uh, what is the, the risk? Something you said that I was unaware of, and that was that uh, what is the risk for higher order multiples? Uh, because I thought it was still pretty low, but maybe I, I misunderstood you. So what is the risk of higher order multiples and versus uh, twins? Um, it's low. I mean, I, I think that the risk of um, twins, uh, in, if you use Clomid or Letrozole, is probably somewhere around 5%, uh, which is higher than the natural uh, rate in the general population, which is probably more like 1% to 2%. But the, the risk of higher order multiples is probably 1% or less, uh, especially if we use monitoring. Uh, so the, 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 the monitoring that we do do and that we do recommend uh, essentially can help uh, weed out the highest risk patients, meaning those that develop uh, many, many follicles. So if, and, and of course, our decision making when we're faced with more than one follicle is guided by the individual circumstances of the patient. So for example, if I see a 25 year old who hasn't had a period in uh, 18 months uh, and now we're using letrozole to induce ovulation and uh, our plan is for her to have timed intercourse and conceive, then even if I see two follicles, I'm already like very worried because this woman who never usually ovulates suddenly might ovulate two eggs. There's a high, high chance of twins or if one of them splits, even triplets. I may even consider telling her to wait, cancel the cycle and try again and try to aim for one follicle. On the other hand, if I have a 41-year-old with unexplained infertility and advanced reproductive age, and she's doing her fifth IUI cycle, and I see three follicles, I can probably confidently say, look, it's fine to go ahead because your chance of multiple pregnancy is not really that high. Although, of course, it could still happen. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, yeah, but you're taking into, the, into account the patient um, and the, the uh, idiosyncrasies of that particular patient. All right, what are the risks of, of cancer? Uh, something that we hear a lot from patients is, uh, does either of these, is there a, an association between the use of either clomiphene citrate or letrozole and any type of cancer? Um, well, the simple answer is not a substantial increase of uh, any cancer could be demonstrated in studies. now. Early studies that are like decades old now, population studies uh, in the setting of Clomid, 
may have demonstrated ever so slightly increased risks of certain cancers. But, you know, you have to always remember with all of these studies, both in the setting of when we talk about Clomid or Letrozole or IVF, the, the difficulty in these studies is controlling for the fact that you're comparing a, patient, a, a group of patients and a patient population that, that is in one particular setting, in the setting of, for example, infertility, with the general population. So in some ways, you're comparing apples and oranges. So when you, whenever you compare, a, a, for example, a, a, a population of people with PCOS, uh, well, those patients might have more uh, diabetes. Uh, they might have more, for example, endometrial hyperplasia because of the mechanisms of the, of the, of the PCOS. Or if you compare a, a lump population of patients with infertility that are doing IVF, then those patients, I mean, there, there will be some that have male factor infertility, some that have um, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, meaning infections, some that may have endometriosis. So you have this mixture of different pathologies. And so the, the difficulty in all studies, uh, and I think we addressed this recently uh, when, when, when a, a, a new study came out that w was along those lines, in all of these uh, studies, it's always important to remember uh, that we have to control for the differences in the underlying population with the population that we're comparing it with. So I usually tell patients that, let's say, if somebody is worried, they've done two cycles of Clomid and they want to do another cycle uh, or something of that nature, I can tell them, look, we don't know exactly if it increases your cancer risks by like marginal amounts, but it's more, if there is a small increase, it's very small. Likewise, there was a concern about birth defects with mm -hmm. these medications. Um, again, uh, you know, we, the only thing we can say is uh, there may be a very, very tiny increase, uh, but we don't know if it's due to the underlying patient population or the medication, and we don't know if it's quote-unquote real. With the birth defect particular, this is an interesting um, part of the history of reproductive medicine because in the early 2000s, uh, some physicians in Canada started to use letrozole more for ovulation induction in PCOS, and they found that it was incredibly effective. They had very promising data. And then there was an abstract submitted to the annual ASRM meeting. It actually ended up never being published, suggesting that letrozole was associated with increased numbers of birth defects, particular cardiac defects. And so what happened at the time, this is like, if, if, if people are interested, uh, there, is, uh, there are papers on the historical perspective by somebody called Bob Casper. And what happened was because the manufacturer of the letrozole was more interested in, in its use in the setting of breast cancer and fertility was essentially a small market, the minute they heard about this birth defect abstract, they put a black box warning on letrozole for in the setting of fertility, and so that really uh, delayed the more widespread implementation of letrozole as a medication for PCOS, because years later, it was 
conclusively figured out that the number of birth defects was no different whatsoever between Clomid and Letrozole. In fact, it may even be a tad higher with Clomid. However, the damage was done, the black box warning was in place, and physicians felt uncomfortable uh, to prescribe Letrozole. And it was only this newest study from the Reproductive Medicine Network in 2014 that showed that Letrozole was better, and OX also didn't have increased numbers of birth defects that uh, cleared the path for the use of letrozole. So the short answer is, I think both with cancer and with birth de defects, we can reassure our pa patients that if there is an increase, it's small. Okay, excellent. Let me pause for a moment to remind you that this show is brought to you in part through the generous support of our partners. These are organizations and clinics that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. We could not be doing what we do without their support, and we thank them. One such partner is Walgreens and Alliance RX Walgreens Prime. They provide specialized fertility pharmacy services through an experienced care team that is available 24-7 and they are devoted to helping patients achieve successful outcomes. They understand the importance of timing and the need for personalized treatment, and they are committed to compassionate care and support throughout a patient's journey to have a family. All right, on part two, we're going to be talking about medications used for IVF, uh, sorry, in vitro fertilization cycles. So I think it would help if you could give us the protocol for a typical IVF cycle. And I realize there is no such thing as a totally uh, typical cycle, and it depends on the diagnosis. But if you could walk us through uh, how the process usually plays out. Yeah, so I think for the learners out there, uh, I can uh, tell them what I tell medical students, residents, or people coming to shadow me for a day, and that is the fact that before memorizing and learning all the medication names and all of the uh, intricate uh, details and uh, small elements of an IVF cycle, I think it is important to remember the big picture and to understand the, the overarching principle because then you can always fill in the gaps and decide what this medication does and where in these phases of the IVF cycle it belongs. So, first of all, IVF is in vitro fertilization. That means the fertilization that normally occurs in vivo in the tube. So normally the sperm swims through the uterus into the tube and if it's lucky it encounters an egg that has been ovulated from the ovary and been picked up by the tube. And so in the tube is where fertilization occurs. So what we have normally in the sort of in the wild so to speak is in vivo fertilization. So fertilization that happens in the tube and the, 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 the fertilized egg grows into an embryo and then travels to the uterus and implants. So that's the in vivo fertilization. In in vitro fertilization, essentially the whole process from ovulation via fertilization, embryo development, and uh, essentially embryo maturation occurs in the lab, uh, which is why it's called in vitro. Now, in order to do in vitro fertilization, 
in the very early days of IVF, uh, for example, right around the time when the first birth occurred in 1978, people used to do um, natural cycles. That means they used to allow the patient to go through the normal physiology of the menstrual cycle and then extracted the eggs, uh, the, the egg. Uh, at the time, it was done with uh, laparoscopy, and then fertilized that egg in the lab, and then grew it into an embryo, and then transferred it back into the uterus. So the first patient that received this treatment, and uh, the basically the mother of Louise Brown who was born uh, in July 1978. Uh, that patient had a blockage of the tubes, and so basically the egg needed to be taken out and the, the tubes needed, needed to be bypassed. That was the first indication. Nowadays, we do IVF for all sorts of indications. But the basic uh, parts, the basic elements of any IVF cycle that learners should remember is there is some form of downregulation of the ovaries or synchronization of the follicles as the first phase. So that's the downregulation part. That is the first part in preparation of the IVF cycle. The second part, and that's the core of the IVF cycle, IVF cycle is the stimulation of the ovaries. And that is the part where our goal is that rather than having just one dominant follicle develop, multiple follicles grow at the same time. That is the second part. The third part that needs to be in place, and this has all been figured out by trial and error over the decades that we've now done IVF, is prevention of premature ovulation. So there is a normal process that the body goes through to produce ovulation, and it involves estrogen concentrations being a certain amount for a few days, and then the LH surge. And it could happen that in a menstrual cycle, um, it, you know, just like in a menstrual cycle, in an IVF cycle, a patient just ovulates and then all the eggs are lost. And so that's why we have found over the decades of doing this that we need to do something to prevent premature ovulation. And then when the time comes that we would like to do the egg retrieval, then we trigger ovulation. And that is the last part before the egg retrieval. So just to go over it one more time, down regulation of the ovaries, followed by stimulation of the ovaries with some sort of prevention of premature ovulation built in, followed by the ovulation trigger, followed by the egg retrieval. So those are the phases that I think everybody should remember. And then if you look at different protocols, they all have these elements in there is just different variations. They all, yeah, yeah, they're all are a different too. They're, they follow this basic, the basic four steps you just, four parts you just mentioned, okay? Exactly, and just to then expand on that. So in the early days, like after people realized that the natural uh, way was a little bit inefficient because you would only get like one uh, egg, around one egg per cycle, uh, when people figured that out. So then they started to use more and more gonadotropins like FSH and LH to stimulate the ovaries to produce more follicles. But then we also realized as a field that if you do that without the down regulation and without the synchronization of the follicles, 
that it's it's inefficient because sometimes women would develop a dominant follicle if we don't downregulate them, and therefore uh, we would then have an asynchronous stimulation of the follicle. So if you in in the patient that I mentioned earlier who on day three already has a 15 millimeter follicle, it's not ideal to start the stimulation then because one is already ahead ahead of the curve. Ideally, during the stimulation, we want to uh, stimulate a cohort that grows in sync uniformly, and therefore the down regulation uh, was put in place. And then the stimulation, including the prevention of premature ovulation, followed by the ovulation trigger. Now, over the years, different protocols have been used, but just to, to give you the big picture, after the natural cycle uh, was not used quite as often anymore, although it's still used uh, in some settings. People started to use Lupron, which is a GnRH agonist, to use for the downregulation as well as birth control pills. So people would start Lupron, and Lupron basically is a GnRH agonist that, that shuts down the reproductive axis uh, from the uh, hypothalamus to the pituitary to the ovary. So it shuts that down a bit like a, an artificial menopause type situation so that the ovaries are quiet. So Lupron was the original thing that was used for downregulation. And then for stimulation, the gonadotropins like FSH and LH, and then the Lupron was continued during the stimulation to prevent premature ovulation because it, it prevented the LH surge during the stimulation. And then as an ovulation trigger, HCG or a human chorionic gonadotropin, which is the pregnancy hormone, mm -hmm. was used uh, because it's, it's essentially easier to make and cheaper to make than LH. Uh, it also has a longer half-life. So HCG was used in order to complete the maturation of the eggs prior to the egg retrieval at the end of this protocol. Now, this protocol has largely been abandoned, I would say, in favor of the antagonist protocol. And just very quickly, the antagonist protocol that we now use more and more often, the downregulation part is achieved with either birth control pills or with something called estrogen priming or with progestins. So there needs to be some sort of downregulation, and that's typically done nowadays with oral medications. And then the stimulation is done again with the injectables like FSH and LH. And again, as I said earlier, we sometimes add Clomid to that. And then the prevention of premature ovulation, that is actually the, 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 the crucial part of the antagonist cycle that's different because for that, we use a GnRH antagonist when the lead follicle reaches a certain, certain size. And then what this all does, and this gets more into the sort of like depth of IVF, that allows us to use different types of triggers because in the traditional way, we use the HCG trigger. In this protocol with the antagonist, we can also use something called the Lupron trigger, which reduces the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation. Uh, now, that is all quite, quite a lot of uh, uh, detail and some learners may already understand all this and some it may be like a little too, too involved, but basically the antagonist protocol is the one that we use predominantly. In, in our practice, I would say 90% or more of cycles are done with the antagonist protocol and in that protocol you use oral medications to downregulate the ovaries, then the injectables for the stimulation, and then the GnRH antagonist. Their names are cetrotide or ganorelics usually, 
in the United States to prevent premature ovulation. And then you can use either or or a combination of HCG and the Lupron trigger to trigger the final egg maturation prior to the egg retrieval. And so generally speaking, the exact drug and the dosage used during IVF depends on any number of factors, the patient's age, the diagnosis, and the, and the protocol, the stimulation protocol that you're using. Yes, that's exactly right. And in general, the, um, the, the principle is that women who have lots of follicles and high ovarian reserve uh, will receive lower doses of medications, and the, the women who have uh, low numbers of follicles, low ovarian reserve, uh, and advanced reproductive age will receive higher doses of medications. Plus, and I guess we'll get to that, if during the monitoring we, 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 we realize that somebody either overshoots or undershoots, then we can adjust you know, the, the medications by either increasing or decreasing them. So, for example, if we see that somebody uh, is responding excessively and there is a risk of what's called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS, then we reduce the number of uh, the, the, the dosage of the medications that we give. If somebody has low, a low response judged by ultrasound and the estrogen levels, then we increase the dose. Okay, perfect. All right, now let's jump into the details with gonadotropins. Uh, First of all, what of the, you've listed four parts to a typical uh, protocol. The first is a down regulation of the ovaries. The second is a stimulation of the ovaries. The third is prevention of premature ovulation. And the fourth is trigger, triggering ovulation. So at what stage do the gonadotropins fit in? They're the, 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 the core of the stimulation. Gotcha. Um, okay. And so, so basically, typically what we do, so just to, you know, give you a practical idea. So, for example, in our practice, uh, we mostly use either esterase, uh, which is an estrogen, oral estrogen preparation, or birth control pills for the downregulation part. So, uh, in our practice, if somebody is on birth control pills, they typically start it on day three of their cycle, and they take it for, let's say, two to three weeks. Then they come in for a, uh, you know, some people call that a down-regulation scan or a baseline scan um, to, to make sure that the follicles are indeed now synchronized and ready to go. So basically, you, you give the oral medication and then you assess that the ovaries are at a place where we can now stimulate them and expect a synchronous response. And that's birth control um, or estrace, did you say? Yes, and, 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 and of course, this is specifics that, you know, that every practice might have gotcha. uh, their okay. own, uh, own idiosyncrasies. But what we, for example, commonly do is we do something called a midluteal estrace protocol, which is where women who uh, ovulate normally check for ovulation at home, and then when they ovulate based on the ovulation predictor kits, then six days later, they start the estrace medication, and they take it for about two weeks and essentially what this does is it actually goes back to the physiology that we discussed earlier. It prevents the um, pituitary gland from starting to recruit a follicle prematurely for the next cycle. Uh, so it basically keeps the ovaries quiet during the late stages of the luteal phase so that when we see people after, let's say they take the estrace for two or three weeks, 
then uh, we see them and all the follicles are small and none of them have grown to a, a, a big size yet so that we can then start the gonadotropins. And likewise, with the birth control pills, they're taken for about two to three weeks. And again, to, with the goal of creating a situation where the ovaries are in sync, they're basically reset almost like, it's like when you press a reset button, the, the follicles in the ovaries are all small. Um, for the advanced learners, I can say that the difference between birth control pills and uh, S-rays may be that with the birth control pills, there's a bit more suppression of the ovaries. So in women who generally already have lower numbers of follicles, maybe you would like to not suppress them more. Whereas on the other hand, women who have lots and lots and lots of follicles who do IVF, for example, women with PCOS, maybe that's a good thing if they're a bit more suppressed and we're not creating as many follicles when we give the stimulation. Okay. All right. So now we're moving into the stimulation phase with gonadotropins. Uh, and so what are some of the, just give us some of the, what are the different types of, of gonadotropin medications and, and give us the brand names, because I think a lot of nurses uh, probably know them by the brand name as well. Yeah. So, um, in general, it's uh, good to know that these gonadotropins, um, because they're glycoprotein, they can be uh, produced in one of two most commonly used ways. Uh, one is actually to isolate them from menopausal urine, which always sounds a little sort of strange to people who are new to our field, but basically the, 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 the big breakthroughs in our field, because you have to remember, there was a time where people still uh, isolated gonadotropins from actual human pituitary glands uh, or even uh, from animal sources, and there were all sorts of problems associated to, with that, until it was found that you can actually extract LH and FSH from the urine of menopausal women because their pituitary glands because the ovaries are not doing anything, they're producing large amounts of FSH and LH, which just gets excreted in the urine. So if you collect menopausal urine, which you know it famous, famously was done in uh, Italian uh, nunneries, uh, so the, the urine from Italian nuns was used to extract FSH and LH initially, and uh, you know there's purification methods, but that's one way, and that's how, for example, Manipure and Repronex are derived. But then the other way to produce um, gonadotropins is in a so-called recombinant way, uh, and that is essentially cell cultures. For example, uh, you know there's cultures from I think Chinese hamster ovaries or something like that that essentially have uh, you know been manipulated in a way to produce large amounts of one particular hormone, for example, FSH or LH, and then they can be purified. So LH, FSH mixtures extracted from menopausal urine would be things like Menopure, and then for FSH, pure FSH preparations, it would be things like Gonal F and Folostim that people probably are familiar with. So and Gonal and F and Folostim. Wouldn't we also say Brevel? Yeah. Okay, so Brevelacinolef and Folostim. And for the LH-FSH combination, it would be Minipure and isn't Repronex one of them as well? Correct. 
Okay. And, and, and basically the brand names, I think, are just sort of a question of like which pharmacy, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the particular practice uses. Uh, but and, and, and then, of course, um, the manufacturers uh, of these um, will tell us that, of course, their product is, is the best. But in general, I think it's uh, best to remember to uh, that, that there are recombinant or uh, you know, essentially urinary sources of gonadotropins. And the other thing that it bears uh, keeping in mind, that, that, that is worth keeping in mind, is that it has been shown that most likely a combination of FSH and LH is beneficial for uh, the uh, growth of the follicles and for the stimulation. Now, uh, FSH is the the most crucial hormone, but it's been shown that LH definitely has a function too. Okay, and these are all administered via uh, uh, shots, injections? Yeah, correct. Okay. And so, so, so typically, like a patient would use a combination of a urinary-derived LH uh, FSH preparation together with a recombinant FSH preparation. So, you know, let's say a combination of, uh, let's say, Menopure and Folostim, for example, which the the Menopure would be the LH and FSH preparation that's urinary derived, and the Folostim would be the recombinant FSH preparation. But again, that's practice dependent, and uh, you know, it might be just sort of pharmacy and insurance dependent. Other factors might might come into play. Yeah, yeah, can't forget about uh, yes, insurance for sure. Okay, so what type of monitoring should be used for patients taking these medications? Yeah, so the, the, the particular goal of IVF is to get a good number of eggs to give us a good chance of getting a, a decent number of embryos to then maximize the chance of pregnancy. But on the other hand, I've already mentioned that there is a risk of IVF, which is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And so our goal is to not hyperstimulate the patient while still getting a adequate number of eggs that gives the patient a good chance of pregnancy. Now, if a patient has decreased ovarian reserve, there's a ceiling, there's a limit to the number of eggs that we can get anyway. Like in some patients, even with high dose medications, we can only get, let's say, five eggs or so, or, or three eggs. Whereas in others, it might be that we have to actually put the brakes on and focus on the fact that we're going to get a good number of eggs, but let's not hyperstimulate this patient. And so, you know, there have been like countless studies to try and figure out what the ideal number of eggs is. And so we, you know, arbitrarily or somewhat arbitrarily shoot for somewhere around 15 or, or so eggs. 15 to 20 maybe, in a patient where that's possible. So in people who have low ovarian reserve, it might not be an issue because an issue because we might only be able to get three or five. But in, in, in other patients, let's say if somebody does this for male factor infertility or for a tubal factor, uh, then maybe somewhere around between 10 and 20, some sort of double-digit number is a good idea. So basically, during the stimulation, we have checkpoints. And so a patient starts on day one. Let's say she starts on a Saturday. Then actually on the third day of the injections, which, which would be a Monday, we actually here in our practice already do an estrogen test 
to see if to get an idea if we're overshooting or undershooting and we can already adjust the medication. Then on the fifth day of the stimulation, we do an ultrasound and a blood test. So we do an estradiol and a, 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 an ultrasound, and we can see how many follicles are growing and how big they are. And then we repeat that uh, at increasingly closer intervals. So for example, day three, blood test. Then day five, seven, nine, 10, for example, ultrasound and blood test. And depending on our level of comfort and our level of worry that this patient is going to hyperstimulate, we might do almost daily blood tests in this process. And basically, the estradiol level and the ultrasound findings can guide us in a way to prevent hyperstimulation while still getting a good number of eggs. Okay, excellent. All right, now moving on to human chorionic gonadotropins, HCG. Uh, what, uh, in what phase uh, of the uh, IVF cycle would this commonly be used? Yeah, so HCG is the hormone that uh, um, a lot of people are familiar with because it's the hormone that's detested, detected in the urine pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. uh, HCG is also a glycoprotein, uh, and it actually is similar looking to FSH and LH. Uh, there's actually four hormones that share the same alpha subunit. They're uh, LH, FSH, HCG, and TSH, which is the thyroid hormone. And so all of those have essentially one half of the hormone that's the same. LH and, F LH and HCG are structurally the most closely related. So LH and HCG are extremely similar. Uh, they, 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 they look almost identical. They just have some differences uh, on a molecular level. So basically, we can use the HCG, the human chorionic gonadotropin, uh, in the place of LH to trigger ovulation. So that's where we use it. So in the setting of IUI, it would be approximately 36 hours before the insemination. In the evening, let's say on, on the evening of Wednesday, a patient takes uh, an HCG injection, and then we do the IUI on Friday morning. Likewise, in the setting of HCG, in, in the setting of IVF, the HCG uh, completes the final maturation of the eggs and prepares the patient for the retrieval of the eggs. Uh, and typically, it's somewhere between 35 to 39 hours before the retrieval, because, and this is the important part. To remember here, the eggs can only be fertilized if they have undergo, uh, undergone a certain uh, maturation, and that's a certain stage of meiosis. That they, so the, the eggs are arrested at a certain stage of meiosis, and the only way to fertilize them is to go through this process that usually happens in the middle of the cycle at ovulation, and the HCG does that uh, in place of LH. So it's a, it's it's used as a trigger. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And it so, has, has a longer half-life than LH. So what do you use? What type of drugs are used to prevent premature ovulation? Uh, that would be the GnRH antagonists. Okay. And so in the, so the, the history of this is in the 70s and 80s, uh, first, the structure of GnRH was discovered, and GnRH is the hormone that is one step above FSH and LH. So GnRH, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone, comes from the hypothalamus and stimulates the pituitary gland to, to produce FSH and LH. And so the GnRH was discovered uh, 
uh, and you know, uh, two people got the Nobel Prize for it, and then people started to use, take advantage of manipulating GnRH to either suppress the whole axis or stimulate the whole axis, and we can do both. And so, and this is a complicated topic, but just for for simplicity's sake. In the old, older sort of long Lupron protocol, the GnRH agonist was used to suppress early ovulation because when you give an agonist long enough, it will, will eventually turn into a suppressing, pre, suppressing role, a suppressive role, uh, because in the natural state, the GnRH is secreted in a pulsatile fashion, which means it, 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 it you know, it oscillates. And if you give it continuously, it suppresses the axis. So in the old protocol, the prevention of premature ovulation was done with GnRH agonists. But those have an initial flare effect, and so they're not immediate. And the difference, and then the GnRH antagonists were discovered that can immediately shut down the axis. And that was a big breakthrough because it makes our protocol simpler because we can now give the GnRH antagonists, such as Ganarelix and Cetratide, during the cycle to immediately shut down the endogenous axis and immediately prevent premature ovulation. Okay. All right. So the GnRH is the it's what we use to prevent ovulation. And are these also administered through shots? Yes. So uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, well, actually. Let's just uh, modify this a little bit because some brand new, exciting information uh, over the last few years has been discovered that, you know, people have tried to give GnRH antagonists, which, you know, these are the ones that we use, Ganarelix and Cetratide. Uh, they have tried to, to screen molecules uh, like that are orally active to see if they could do the same thing as these GnRH antagonists that are injectable and actually found some that work. They have been used in the setting of endometriosis and fibroids, and they're being increasingly used. Uh, for example, there's a medication called Elagolix, but we have not really started using those as part of our IVF protocols. We're still using the injectable antagonists. Okay, so for now, they are injectables. Stay tuned. Uh, up, you know, perhaps in the future, uh, that could be an oral med. Okay. Exactly. And what type of monitoring is used for patients to, or do you need to monitor at this point? Because you, uh, once you give, uh, I guess if, uh, yeah. So what type of monitoring is, is used to make certain that the uh, uh, ovulation has not uh, happened, that it's worked? You've prevented it. Yeah, great, great, great question. So we can see or we can suspect that somebody has ovulated on ultrasound because we see the formation of a corpus luteum. But the other thing, the, the other way we can do that is monitor progesterone levels at every visit. Now, it depends a little bit, and this goes into like modern trends of IVF because the uh, premature ovulation and the uh, increase in progesterone before the egg retrieval is um, 
a bit of a disaster or of like very important consequence if you are planning to transfer the embryo in the same cycle because then the the endometrium the lining of the uterus would be exposed to the progesterone for too long and basically the the, the synchrony between the lining and the embryo would not be uh, ensured and then the cycle wouldn't work now that we do more more cycles where we don't do the transfer in the same step and we actually freeze all the embryos and then transfer them in a separate step, it's not quite as much of a disaster if the progesterone level creeps up a little bit uh, in the late stages of the simulation. So not every practice uses progesterone to monitor uh, the uh, cycle, uh, but uh, practices that still do fresh transfers absolutely do. But the, the answer is uh, blood tests and ultrasound is how we monitor the cycle in general and also premature ovulation. Okay. Uh, so there are other medications that are lesser players, but we that are uh, used uh, in some IVF cycles. Uh, let's talk about the use of antibiotics. Yeah, so there are many medications that are used in the setting of IVF, and some of them we call adjuvants. We'll get to that in a moment briefly. Antibiotics, um, so that's a bit of a sort of uh, gray area of our field. So in general, the egg retrieval carries a very small risk of infection. Now it's, it's, it's really surprisingly low because I mean, for the, with the egg retrieval, what we do is we use the same ultrasounds, the vaginal ultrasound that we use for the monitoring of the patients to look at the follicle, but this time we attach a little needle holder to it and then with a needle, we under direct visualization, we go into the ovary and suction out the fluid from the follicles and the fluid contains the eggs. You would think that because the uh, the vagina is not exactly a sterile area and you know there's a lot of microbes in there, you would think that the infection rate should be very high from this procedure where we put a needle through the vaginal wall into the ovary, but it's actually surprisingly low. So the use of antibiotics is uh, a little bit uh, controversial and I think protocols again vary from clinic to clinic. I can tell you what we do. We just give one dose of antibiotics just immediately prior to uh, the egg retrieval. And we used to, uh, in, 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 in my current practice, give people then doxycycline, doxycycline orally uh, as a, as a uh, course after the egg retrieval. We have actually gone away from using the doxycycline after the egg retrieval in low-risk patients. We may still occasionally use uh, longer courses of antibiotics in somebody who has, for example, endometriosis and has a higher risk of infection because they might have cysts on their ovaries uh, that might get infected. Okay. What about low-dose aspirin? We hear about that being used on occasion. Yeah. Low-dose aspirin, there was a study from Argentina from right around 1999 or so that had suggested with a small number of patients that there was an increase in the success rates through increased blood flow. That study has been essentially proven to not, well, it wasn't wrong. They obviously had the findings, but it couldn't be reproduced in about 13 other trials that were done since. And basically, since that time, a meta-analysis has shown that aspirin, low-dose aspirin during the IVF stimulation does not have a beneficial effect. It most likely also doesn't have any major harm, but we've gone away from giving it. Okay, so those both the antibiotics and low dose are clinic specific, protocol specific, 
and yeah and, and then if, if i may if i just may add and just as a source of things to think about for people and to maybe see what what's happening in their clinic uh there is also quite a lot of literature about other medications that are called adjuvants in uh in the setting of ivf i actually do the lecture at our annual meeting in coronado uh, we have an IVF symposium that happens every July and August uh, here in, in, in San Diego. Unfortunately, it was canceled this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But basically, I give a lecture on the use of adjuvants, and those include things like uh, growth hormone, uh, androgens, and, uh, for example, uh, dexamethasone. So there are other medications where there is quite a lot of uh, body of literature on the use, especially in quote-unquote poor responders in IVF. But again, that's a whole topic in and of itself. <laughs> the, the, what, what maybe is worth remembering is the mainstay of the stimulation is achieved using the gonadotropins with FSH and LH, but there are medications out there that may improve the sensitivity of the ovaries in women who are poor responders to stimulation, such as potentially growth hormone. Okay, excellent. What are some of the common side effects of IVF medications, all the ones we've listed for all four of the sections of a parts of a phases of an IVF cycle? Yeah, so uh, to start, I usually tell patients IVF is a very low risk procedure. That I think it, it, it bears keeping in mind that while there is a lot of fear and, you know, like it can be stressful and so on. Overall, in terms of long-term consequences, it's a very safe procedure. The most important risk, and again, this varies from patient to patient, is probably the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Now, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome typically happens in patients who are younger, who have higher numbers of follicles, and for example, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, because in those patients, uh, there's such a high number of follicles that when all of these follicles grow together and then the trigger of ovulation is administered, then they all, these follicles all turn into uh, multiple corpora lutea, meaning multiple of these corpus luteums, and, and then they produce substances that make the blood vessels leaky and that can uh, produce the features of hyperstimulation syndrome such as third spacing of fluid into the abdomen, in the space under the lung, and so on. Now, we have found many different ways, and again, this is a lecture in and of itself, to reduce the risk of hyperstimulation. Number one, close monitoring. Number two, the type of trigger that we use. So we use less and less of the HCG trigger and more and more of the Lupron trigger, and that reduces the risk of hyperstimulation, but also not doing the fresh transfers. So all of those things reduce the risk of hyperstimulation, but it still is probably the risk that I talk the most to my patients about. The other things are the risks of the procedure. So the, the retrieval procedure is very safe. I usually say significant clinically meaningful complications happen in less than one per thousand cases. Uh, but if they occur, the most common complica complication, even though it's rare overall, is bleeding. So bleeding around the ovary if we hit a vessel uh, near a follicle. 
And so then the patients sometimes need to be observed or worst case scenario, they need to get a blood transfusion or even, and this is extremely rare, need to get some sort of like laparoscopy surgery to explore the bleeding. But bleeding is one complications, but it's way less than 1%. And then even more rare are complications like uh, infection or damage to surrounding organs like the bowel and the bladder. Now, in terms of other risks of IVF, multiple pregnancy is a controllable risk because if we only transfer one embryo, which is what we do universally in our practice, then the risk of multiple pregnancy, the risk of twins is 2%, and that is the risk of the embryo splitting and basically producing identical twins. But otherwise, I mean, the risk of multiple pregnancy of IVF is entirely up to us. So I tell patients, if you do an IVF cycle with us, then there is no real increase in the risk of uh, multiple pregnancy. In fact, it's lower than if you were to do a Clomid with IUI cycle because we only put one embryo. And so there is no, that we don't have fraternal twins anymore in IVF because we only transferred one embryo. And then as far as cancer and birth defects, I think we've touched on that before. If there is an increase in risk, it's small. Okay, for both of them. Okay. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Alex Kloss, for talking with, the, with us today. Uh, we truly appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you so much.